0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, this edition of the uh, War Room Podcast. I'm uh, Daryl Driver, Director of European Studies Program here at the U.S. Army War College. And I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Johan Eliasson, uh, who is Associate Professor in International Relations at East Strasburg University here in Pennsylvania. I'll remind everyone that this particular podcast is uh, a part of our ongoing series in regional studies that we're doing here in Uh, at the War College, and uh, Dr. Uh, Eliason joins us today to talk about transatlantic trade and investment. Um, Dr. Eliason is ideally suited for this task because at the moment, he's awaiting the release of his latest book entitled uh, Civil Society, Contested Rhetoric, and Transatlantic Relations. Uh, Thanks again for joining us today, Johan. Thanks. It's very nice to be here. I wonder if we might start off, as we as we typically do, um, rather than going through a long introduction, is, is just asking you if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and especially how you came to this particular topic, transatlantic trade and investment, uh, and,
1: and, and the topic that you have in your forthcoming book. Um, well, I've been focusing on the European Union and uh, relations between Europe and the U.S. since um, I was in grad school in the late 1990s. And... Uh, the the interest i have in particular uh, on trade has to do with how um civil society organizations or perhaps non uh, governmental organizations or not for profit organizations and business organizations affect how governments deal with um what is colloquially or normally called trade policy and investment policy um it it fascinates me how uh the public is becoming more and more interested um that's on the sort of the, the current book topic, as, as I know we'll get back to. More generally, I'm fascinated by this project called the European Union, um, the continuation of integration in Europe. And that's been my sort of main interest generally um, in a larger scheme uh, for the last 20 plus years. And uh,
0: for our listeners, I would only uh, say that uh, I've, I've known Johan for about almost 20 years now because we were in graduate school together at Syracuse University some time ago. But you've actually picked a good topic for the moment. Um, it's a particularly challenging time in many, many regards to talk about trade, um, not just in the transatlantic trading re- relationship, but also in trade writ large. So I wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about the importance of the transatlantic economy. I mean, we hear so much about the China-U.S. relationship, but the tra- uh, transatlantic economy is actually a pretty important uh, part
1: of our, our, our global trade in general, uh, is it not? Yeah, I think uh, it's a little bit of um, – I think the reason we hear so much about China and the U.S. is because China is still considered the new kid on the block, and whenever a new um, important country – uh, comes about, and China has a huge population, big economy, huge influence uh, in terms of what it buys, sells um, across the globe, uh, the news coverage tends to focus on that. And it's correct that China is a huge economy, and along with the United States, has um, play an enormous role in the global economy going forward, as well as security relationships. But if you Look beyond the headlines, the amount of investment that American companies um, have abroad is about 20 times larger in Europe than it is in China. Um, The European Union, though not a country, um, acts and talks like a country when it comes to trade and investment in that Belgium and Germany do not trade with the US, the European Union does. Um, just like California and Texas do not trade, the United States do. Um, and so for us, this um, uh, partner in Europe is by far the most important economically. About 20 times more investments. Um, there's about a billion dollars worth of goods and services that, cro- that cross the Atlantic every single day. And about 15 million jobs are dependent upon this relationship on both sides of the Atlantic. So while Europe is not On the front page of the newspapers every day, aside from an occasional financial crises and and others, um, it is still the most important economic and political relationship that the United States has.
0: Yeah, it's something something like 35% of global GDP, equivalent roughly to the U.S. Uh, Foreign direct investment is huge in the U.S. from Europe. Um, In fact, if our listeners are interested, uh, the Center for Transatlantic Relations at uh, Syce Johns Hopkins publishes an annual survey of the economic relationship across the transatlantic space. Uh, that you may find very interesting. But uh, having said that, sort of establish what it is. uh, We had once upon a time uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Pact, which was under negotiation. Uh, Listeners will probably be much more familiar with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was in a little more mature stage of development. But this Transatlantic Trade and Investment Pact, as we were negotiating it, how was that going to change the trading relationship? How was it, I should say?
1: Well, uh, it would have been by far the biggest trade agreement that the world had ever seen, um, and there would have been a couple of huge ramifications for um, that impact the U.S. security and e- Euro- e- the U.S. economy. First of all, um, the amount of goods and services flowing across the, the Atlantic between European countries and the United States, um, normal, it's, it's huge. They normally don't have very high tariffs or taxes, right? but... Um, Given the volume, even low tariffs um, will pr- create a huge amount of burden, particularly on small small uh, businesses that can't really deal with those. So removing all of those tariffs on U.S. and European products would have been a huge boost, uh, particularly to small and mid-sized companies that employ most of the people, most workers in the United States and in Europe. Uh, so that would have been a huge, huge uh, advantage. Secondly, it would also have created um, what's what's called a geostrategic advantage in other words, the European Union and the U.S., aligning a lot of regulatory standards for various products from cars, trains, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, digital services, that then other businesses, other firms in other countries around the world from South America to East Asia uh, would subscribe to and start conforming to because they need access to the European and U.S. markets. There would be a huge political economic and security advantage for the US and Europe because that would put China, one of the main uh, sort of economic and security rivals, at a disadvantage because although China is a huge market the biggest consumer markets are still in the US and Europe combined they would set the standards that firms in other countries would uh, abide by and that was actually explicitly stated by several South Korean and Japanese companies during these negotiations uh, and that would have created a sort of commitment to the US that we align with our allies and set standards jointly. It would have sort of compelled companies to align standards in products and services with the U.S. and Europe. And it would have solidified the political commitments that we have to each other against, um, and I don't want to say in a in a forceful, aggressive way, but it would have strengthened the position we have vis-a-vis China. Um, and for that, both for economic and political reasons, um, I lament the fact that this was not completed, unfortunately. Yeah. So in the uh,
0: forthcoming book, you look at this in, in some detail, or at least the civil society uh, sort of aspects of that, how the, bait, the debate unfolded in Europe. Um, I mean, even before the Trump administration, the achievement agreement on TTIP was already sort of going to be quite challenging. But I, So I wonder sort of in that context, would you, would you mind talking a bit about how the debate unfolded in Europe and what your research revealed about how the different parties, both pro and con, sought to sway that debate over trade?
1: sure um I I just want to add a note on that um the the upcoming book is co-authored with um an associate professor of historical uh, economic history at, at the University of Barcelona Patricia Garcia Duran um whom I've worked with for the last five years so she's 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 an excellent co-author and a great great scholar and friend um so even though the 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 mutual economic relationship is strong deep and ex incredibly extensive, um, as is the uh, military and security relationship. There is um, um, a great deal of wariness in Europe uh, about the US generally. And to simplify simplify, but there's a great deal of truth to this, is that there is a significant uh, uh, percentage of Europeans, particularly on the continent and in southern Europe, but particularly on the continent, France and eastward. That believe that American standards and quality of products and services, and the concern with the environment and safety and, and privacy are very low compared to the European standards. Now, empirically, uh, the evidence does not bear this out, um, but the perception is something that the civil society organizations or non-profit organizations tapped into, and using social media very effectively. Um and their own publication, uh, podcasts, radio shows, online uh, videos, um, and also traditional lobbying and protests. They garnered millions of signatures and managed to get roughly five million people over the course of two and a half years out on the streets on continental Europe protesting against an agreement between the US and Europe uh, for fear of lowering food standards, for fear of diluting privacy standards. Uh, lowering the quality of products and services. Right? And while the arguments, as I said, lack empirical basis, um, the facts don't bear this out. Uh, there's a whole bunch of research showing that you know, there's, there's no less safety in most American food products or services or goods than in the, in the European Union. Um, this convinced enough people to rally against public officials, to protest against the agreement. And this built up um, a substantial amount of public opposition in key countries, Germany, Austria, France, big drivers of trade in in Europe. Um, Interestingly, if you look at Britain, the traditionally strongest ally, uh, these protests were somewhat more subdued. And in the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, that are traditionally very, very open-minded and pro-trade, they didn't take hold at all. But in key countries in the continent, they did. And this was probably the most successful um, civil society protest movement in modern times in terms of big policy changes. Uh, So we track how this rhetoric was used, how the campaign worked to convince public uh, opinion, which then put pressure on elected officials that then ultimately led to reluctance to actually to agree to certain compromises with the United States. so while we were debating the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the United States, mostly uh, labor unions and, and the Democrats who expressed concern with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Europe was ablaze with, with mm. these protest movements. Uh, and objectively speaking, it was a very impressive can, campaign with hundreds of organizations, more or less coordinated. Uh, but of course, it, the outcome, I think, um, was not to the benefit of transatlantic relations. Mm.
0: Were, th- were there any similar sort of efforts on the pro side, or was this uh, sort of any organized effort to really get the word out? Or
1: Yeah, uh, there was substantial efforts by something called the Transatlantic Business Council, which is one of the biggest um, organizations of U.S. and European um, transna- um, uh, transnational firms. Um, they l- had significant activities in terms of holding town halls, uh, publishing research, engaging heavily on Twitter, and... Um, YouTube. But they actually gave up. I had several meetings with the representatives and they found themselves outpaced, outfunded, outmatched. Um, and surveys showed that if you look at the most, fa- most commonly used social media sites, YouTube uh, and Twitter, uh, the percentage was about 97 to 3 against versus 4. Um, so even well-funded firms... Um, did not uh, um, find a way to match the rhetoric of the opposition. And also, there was a, a, a dearth of leadership. Uh, European leaders did not firmly back this in the way that you would would and should have expected them to do. Uh, and that's generally a problem in Europe today. There are very few leaders of the statute you used to have in Helmut Kohl or Margaret Thatcher or Mitterrand or others that there simply are not the type of leadership uh um, figures today that there used to be. And that was a huge problem as well. So uh, so we, we know then there were already challenges sort of getting this,
0: especially when it comes to public opinion approved um, early on. But certainly since uh, uh, President Trump's administration, we've had uh, a more of a forceful, I say, pushback against trade Uh mm-hmm. And uh, to the point where over the summer, it, it really kind of came to the head even with the European Union, uh, sort of these uh, steel and aluminum being one of the trade sanctions that was at least uh, threatened. And that brought president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, here uh, in July. Uh, and there seemed to be a, a deal that was made between the, pres- the president and the president of the commission Um Not a lot of clarity on what that deal is. Uh, I don't know if you
1: give us a read on kind of where we stand at the moment uh, post-meeting. There have been a lot of deals uh, without going into sort of political commentary on domestic uh, policies here. There have been a lot of deals announced, uh, this being one of them. Um, But the substance uh, uh, was um, lacking. The deal was basically to... The agreement was that you wouldn't impose... Uh, further tariffs on European products, for example, on cars that was talked about at that, that time, a huge export market from Europe to the U.S., but uh, in exchange, there would be more European purchases of um, agricultural goods from the U.S., particularly soybeans, a market that has dried up because of the ongoing, quote-unquote, trade war with China, and soybean farmers in the U.S. are desperate to find new markets. The that That was basically the content of the deal as it stood we're, we're going to negotiate something in the future. Europe will buy, buy more soybeans, and we're not going to impose more tariffs on on the european companies that of of course uh, the soybean part was actually already occurring Europe had uh, European countries started buying a little bit more, more soybeans to feed their their farm animals um, because of various problems with the harvest in the u in europe um, But the whole notion of talking that there's the promise of a new negotiation was the main outcome of the meeting. So there's nothing actually substantive that has come from this. Now, the positive part of that was that without imposing new tariffs on European product, the markets, the financial markets saw it as a good thing because there would be less turbulence and less uncertainty. But every attempt since to commence negotiations between Europe and the U.S even on the most limited aspects of, say, industrial products, ex- except for cars, automobile parts, has stalled because the U.S. wants to negotiate agricultural products, which makes all the sense in the world because we're locked out of a big market in China to a large extent. Right? We need our farmers to find new markets. The European say, size, side says, you know, we tried this with TTIP. We still saw millions of people protest against U.S. food uh, quality, Uh, This is not the right time and place, particularly when our current administration here is less popular than the preceding one in Europe. Uh, We're not going to be able to negotiate agricultural product Mm. access into Europe. And the U.S. side has said that's an absolute essential part of any agreement, right, that we will attempt to negotiate. So we're at an impasse. Right now, nothing, nothing substantive has happened. I know that the European representative, the commission, which is the body that... um, negotiates trade deals for all of the European Union, has been in Washington on a couple occasions, Cecilia Malmstrom, but nothing substantive has come out of those meetings. Um, so right now, I think the Europeans are hoping to sort of keep this pause going without making things worse. And the U.S. side, because we're, we have said we're going to start talking with Japan, we're talking with China and with Europe, uh, actually has its plate rather full so I, I think both sides are a little weary of uh, sort of pushing this too hard, and the Europeans definitely want to just maintain the status quo as long as possible. So we, we're sort of in this interregnum
0: period of, of sort of talks, which is sort of certainly better than uh, where we were six months ago. But this so being the Army War College, I guess I would be remiss if uh, here on the War Room I didn't ask you to sort of tie this back to security a bit. Why is this transatlantic trading relationship so important, not just from an economic, but from a security perspective?
1: The the economic aspect of European integration and transatlantic relations plays into the security um, aspect because without an economic foundation for military spending, any attempt at increasing European military spending is not going to work. Um, and with, you know, the U.S. has rightly so for decades criticized the European allies, uh, for spending too little, I think that the spending on defense, while important, is less um, less important than how you spend. Um, if you look at the actual amount that the Europeans spend, about two hundred twenty billion dollars worth a year, it's more than China or Russia spend. Uh, so they should be able to get bigger bangs for the bucks. Um, and so having the U.S. politically and, and militarily and economically tied to Europe. Um, also allows the type of nudging and continuous pressure that I do believe is essential on the Europeans to still strengthen their own defenses, uh, their own military capabilities, um, their own capabilities, and various aspects of security. Right? Um, and I also think that the, the uh, now-defunct, perhaps in some future time, TTIP that I just mentioned, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Agreement, would actually increase security. Because I said the... Strategic importance of committing the two biggest markets, the two biggest economies in the world, um, not only politically and through NATO militarily, but through an agreement that affects ordinary citizens, firms, investors, um, would be the strongest sign to Russia and to China that not only are we still committed to each other, but other regions of the world that you may try to influence and which they have done. In mean, Africa, East Asia, uh, the Caucasus, um, have an alternative. And they have alterna- alternative, uh, not only markets, but alternative political allies. Right. Japan is an e- example of where they've been very concerned with the U.S. retreat from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? Um, because they signaled that as a political non-commitment, non-commit- if you will, as much as an economic withdrawal from from a trade agreement. Um, And so having TTIP with the U.S. and Europe, because Europe already has agreements with South South Korea and with Japan. right? So you would tie in the biggest allies, the biggest regions that China wants to to influence into that political and economic sphere. So, um, yeah, there are real security implications. Um, And finally, U.S. has real concerns with Russia, as does Europe. And A stronger relationship between the US and Europe is the opposite of what Putin and Russia wants. So it would be the best rebuke to Putin if you strengthened transatlantic relations, Um, trade agreements, uh, perhaps deeper uh, 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 political and economic ties through NATO by better uh, efficiency in the way that the Europeans spend on the fence. That would be a European signal to the US. The US would then realize, um, I think even critics of Europe would realize that that is a sign that this relationship is still worth keeping and strengthening further. Right, and um,
0: as you had indicated earlier, one of the uh, one of the great advantages of TTIP would is it would have immediately sort of set the rules of the road, the regulatory yeah. standards in such a way as to really kind of force compliance, particularly when you think about the TTIP relationship with uh, the you know, TPP uh, trans-pacific partnership uh, and the u s. being in both having the opportunity to, um, essentially set those standards. Uh, so if you're worried about people that violate standards or violate uh, free trade, then this would have been one way to address that collectively. I'll give you one more here. It's a question I usually ask to uh, speakers as they come in. You're going to speak uh, here in about an hour or so to a group of future senior leaders in uh, the U.S. military, our partner in Allied militaries, uh, interagency community. If you could leave them with one thing about the transatlantic relationship uh, that they should be aware of, you know, going out there to take their next jobs in a few months. What would that one thing be as someone who's studied this relationship for uh, several decades now?
1: I think that we tend to underestimate in the United States the skepticism um, that is growing in parts of Europe about the necessity of a strong transatlantic um, relationship. And um, there are forces, and I by that I mean parties and organizations and individuals that um, promulgate uh, messages of, of, of negativity against the United States um, and in favor of Russia. And I think while that is not mainstream and not dominant, it's not a majority yet, uh, the undercurrents of this in Europe, I think um, even in countries like Germany, um, and, and even parts of the Netherlands, but particularly in southern and eastern uh, uh, Europe, um, is something to be watched over the next few years. And I think that's a dangerous development, um, because Russia is not the type of anchor to which you want to fasten yourself. Um, but I think that's something that's not really taken as seriously as it should be in the U.S.,
0: Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Uh, Johan Eliasson of East Strasbourg University, uh, his new co-authored book, Civil Society, Contested Rhetoric and Transatlantic Relations, will be out here in March timeframe. Uh, thank you very much for joining us here at, on the War Room and for joining us at the Army War College. Thank you. Thank you
1: very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening.